Welcome to The Word Revealed with David Palmer and Scott Burns, where we talk about everything Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Let's join the conversation. We're back for the second part of our conversation with Justin Hawkins, and uh, I'm here again with my good friend Scott Burns. Scott, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well, David. Justin, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. So when you think of the faith, faith, hope, and love, yeah. you know, that itself is a is a scriptural idiom. Yeah, uh, a, 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 maybe yeah. A, a synthesis or a summary of Paul's preaching, uh, three point sermon. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a handle uh, and an entry point. It's also faith as an act of of trust, uh, hope, love. I know for Augustine and many of the early Christian thinkers, it's the it's the attainment of those as virtues that that both distinguishes the Christian life. Yeah. Uh, sometimes today we use language, we use different language. Maybe we say, "I'm really growing in my discipleship." Yeah. And what do we mean by that? Uh, I know your PhD dissertation is in part on. Uh, the specific specific virtue of magnanimity, yeah. but talk talk about why should Christians care about attaining virtue and what's the relationship of virtue to to what we might think of more descriptively as godliness or what, why should Christians care about Excellent. virtue? Yeah. Sure, I'm going to start with saying what the virtues are. The virtues are good habits of character. And the idea is when we think about the moral development of a person, we might think that it's perfection in doing your duty, keeping the rules, or in maximizing utility. But in general, it seems like we are faced with fairly daily challenges to do more justice, to be a little bit more wise. So if we spend a lot of our moral energy thinking about these strange and difficult cases, what would we do if we had to you know, lie to the Nazis about the Jews in our basement? We're probably going to end up not paying much attention to the process of formation that we undergo day by day in our daily decisions. The virtues attend to the good qualities of character that we develop in those daily interactions with others, with the scriptures and others. Um, The virtues have their sort of point of uh, theoretical origin in ancient Roman and Greek culture. You can find theory about them in Confucianism and Taoism as well. So in further Eastern cultures and uh, schools of reflection, they're there as well. What the Christians do is they take the four cardinal virtues, the four virtues that the pagans use to organize life, um, wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage, and they add on top of these theological virtues, and these are faith, hope, and love. These three virtues are called theological because they have God as their object. They have God as their source. They're given by grace rather than acquired through habituation. And they're revealed by God directly. You won't find in Aristotle a treatment of faith, hope, and love, but you do find it, as you said, in Paul. So these then seven virtues, the four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues, then organize and specify the Christian moral life. 
One, I think, pastoral payoff of this way of thinking about Christian maturity is that it specifies and makes precise the particular deployment of our energies toward maturity and discipleship and formation. So a person might say, I want to be holier. That's a great and good desire. But it's like saying something like, I want to be fitter. It's great, but it's not very specific. And if we don't have a way of specifying that lofty goal, what will end up happening is that we don't actually put into practice the necessary steps to attain that goal. So any good coach or counselor will tell you that the way of attaining a big goal is to cut it down into smaller steps. The virtues help you to specify the particular acts that you want to grow in in Christian maturity. A theological intuition underneath all of this, for me at least, is um, spoken theologically or said theologically, the process of sanctification is synergistic. It's collaborative between your own agency and the work of the Holy Spirit. The other way of saying this is the Holy Spirit empowers your agency, doesn't replace your agency. In general, you're probably not going to get that much more holy without you exercising your agency under the power of the Holy Spirit toward those good goals. So then what we should understand as happening in the Christian life is the increasing acquisition of these virtues, uh, hopefully little by little, hopefully progressively without um, too many big slides backwards, all under the power of the Holy Spirit and in community with other Christians that are gradually conforming us into the image of Christ, who is the exemplar of all of the virtues and also who possesses them in the highest degree. So that's the way I think about the relationship between virtues and development of the Christian moral life. That sounds a lot like Ephesians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, that's exactly and, right. Uh, a trajectory towards Christ likeness. So that's deep, exactly right. Deep, deeply. So those are ideas that come to us from from the Bible, that's, yeah. and uh, and and stir us and point us in that in that direction. Yeah. Justin, you, someone who might not have ever encountered Augustine. Um, probably from this conversation is getting the sense he was a very intelligent man. Yes. Um, and as you think about some of the pursuits and explanations of virtue and godliness, they might get the impression that this guy was always very godly. <laughs> and Augustine actually has some things in his family and even some things in his past yeah. that, um, that, that, that speak of the journey he had to, to be on to yeah. get to that place. So could you talk a little bit about Augustine's early life, his family, some things that might be unexpected about his own story? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can talk a little bit about Augustine's struggle with virtue. Um, some people would find it surprising to put Augustine and virtue in conversation because the reputation he has is of a pessimist about human nature and a skeptic about our ability to acquire the virtues. Um, And I think this makes its way into the Reformed tradition as well, which says uh, all of our best efforts at uh, attaining salvation are as filthy rags, 
And uh, we will not finally be cured of indwelling sin until the last day. That's all true. I believe that to be the case. Um, What we're doing in the Christian moral life is not trying to make God happy with us. We're trying to become more and more conformed into the image of God's Son through our daily labors, even while realizing that we will die with that process uh, unfinished. Augustine's biography gave him one reason to think this is the case. And a a wonderful little hermeneutical point here uh, would illustrate the point. So early in Augustine's Christian life, he believed that Romans 7, the passage where the spirit and the flesh do war against each other and the thing I want to do, I don't do, the thing I do, I don't desire to do, all this. Augustine believes that that describes the life of a person before they receive salvific grace. Because those who possess grace don't have these intractable conflicts like that in Romans 7. And then toward the end of his life, Augustine changes his mind and says, no, no, actually, I think Romans 7 is probably about the Christian moral life as well. These, these, uh, this conflict between flesh and spirit is intractable and continues on through the course of uh, a Christian moral life. So I love this um, because it means that Augustine became more skeptical of his own virtue the more he was acquainted with his own sinfulness. Um, and it's like when Jesus says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone, and we're told that the older ones departed first, right? The ones who are wiser realized that their morality was, was nothing to phone home about. Um, Augustine struggled in particular throughout his life with lust and sex. And I think it's one of the least admirable features of Augustine. In the Confessions, we're told that he has a wife who never receives uh, a name. She's never named. And he puts her away and doesn't come back for her after he became a Christian. You might think that the general paradigm, as I suggested earlier, of Augustinian thought is that all of the good objects a person desires need to be put to death and then resurrected again on the other side of salvation. But sexuality is one place where Augustine struggled, I think, to understand precisely how it would be the case that it might rise again on the last day. And so he himself remained celibate over the course of his life. He pursued a monastic vocation. Um, because he couldn't quite integrate a life of sexuality into a life of Christian discipleship. So that's one biographical feature of Augustine that I think um, sheds some light on his his theology. Another biographical point would be uh, the centrality of his mother, Monica. Monica is very pious. She's very holy, and she begs and pleads God for Augustine's salvation from his youth. And Augustine leaves the faith and has a kind of prodigal son period where he goes off trying to seek notoriety in the capital. And Monica, his wife, his mother, Monica, his mother, weeps over him. 
And when Monica goes to Ambrose, Ambrose encourages her, be of good cheer, far be it for the son of these tears to perish. So there's something about Monica's tears, the fervent prayers of a faithful woman availeth much, that Ambrose sees as in some way, under God and by his grace, the down payment of Augustine's future salvation. And Augustine, for all of his genius and noteworthiness, attributes his greatness in the Christian faith to the tears and intercessions of his mother, Monica, which I think is a beautiful ideal for Christian parents. I'm now a mm-hmm. Christian parent, and I want my child to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to be a, a great Christian thinker. And there is something important, I think, about the life of intercession, um, both for those in our family, but then also those in our broader Christian community. Uh, the life of Christian thinking is a collegial and community project. Uh, this is what Monica's Tears teach us about Augustine's formation. And what about Augustine's father? Yeah. Uh, Augustine's father is a less admirable figure. Um, he wants Augustine to be a, a noble Roman. Uh, and he sees... He takes encouragement, in Augustine's view, in all of the wrong places. Mm. Uh, When Augustine shows early signs of masculine virility, his father is excited because it means he's going to sort of carry on the the tradition, the the Roman family you can think back Mm. to, Aeneas, right? Uh, He wants children because this is part of the Roman gentleman. Um, He, in Augustine's view functions as a person whose priorities are not quite right. And it's interesting there. I mean, you you might draw comparisons to Timothy in the New Testament Mm. when when Paul tells Timothy about Timothy's own sort of heritage of faithfulness. It's his mother and his grandmother, and notably lacking uh, is his his father, right? That's the case for Augustine as well. Justin, is there a particular passage of Scripture that is uh, meaningful to you or, or guides your life in some way? So one beautiful one is from Haggai chapter 2, political theory, I think. And the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That phrase, the desire of the nations, which seems in some way to point to the coming of of a Messiah, is a beautiful Augustinian phrase. The idea here seems to be that the nations of the world all have variety, difference, and uh, glorious diversity. And yet, the desire of all the nations is still in some sense unified for the coming of the Messiah to dwell in peace 
and to reign in justice. So I think Christians can go wrong when they try by their own effort to realize this passage prematurely. There are lots of failed attempts in uh, Christian history to cause the reign of Christ in the world directly without mediation right now. And so I think it's important that this passage has its complement in the book of Revelation, where the new Jerusalem comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, the husband doesn't help the bride get ready for the wedding day morning, right? Um, she comes down prepared. Mm-hmm. So God is doing this glorious work of making the city of peace to reign in the world. And in some sense, that's going to correlate with the thing that all the nations have themselves long desired and continue to desire. That's like the thesis of the city of God in in, in miniature right there. It's beautiful. You got it from to, the Bible. Yeah, and to, to see that... Um, you know, Genesis 1, to fill the earth with the image bearers who can delight in God and his righteous reign. In the end, the city coming down and the nations of the world walking by the light of, of the glory of God and the kings bringing their glory into it, and then no need to ever shut the gates again. Yeah, yeah. So. Beautiful. beautiful. It is. It's that'll, beautiful. That'll preach, as they that say. That will preach. That'll preach. Um, well, Justin, it's delightful to, to be with you here on our podcast, and uh, we wish God's blessing on you as you wrap up your, your uh, PhD at Yale this spring and uh, continue on with a fellowship and that your life would bring glory to God in your thinking and in your family and in your in your public and your public service to Christ and your private devotion to him. So God bless you and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much and thank you for all the good work on this podcast and the church as well. God bless you both. Yeah, it's good to have you in the family of God and um, to be with you today. It was an honor to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining Dr. David Palmer, Senior Pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Cincinnati, and Scott Burns, Associate Pastor. Meet us here next time for another conversation on the Bible.